Please, please, please don't fast forward. This will take exactly 12 seconds. I, Kevin Pang, host of Proof, have a brand new book out called A Very Chinese Cookbook. If you want to learn proper Chinese cooking, this is the book to get. Again, it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook, and it's out in stores now. Okay, thanks. Bye. Twenty years ago, when I was taking non-Chinese friends to Chinatown for the first time, the gateway food I'd introduced to them was this pastry called an egg tart. It's this sweet, eggy, custardy filling that's the yellow hue of a sunflower. And everyone I've introduced egg tarts to think they're so tasty, and it's inspired them to explore more Chinese cuisine. Now, those were the days before bubble tea or boba tea was ubiquitous. Boba tea shops are everywhere nowadays, not just in Chinatowns, but in hipster downtown corridors and near college campuses. You've seen the drink. These are black chewy pearls sitting on the bottom of a plastic cup with tea or a fruit smoothie. Boba refers both to the chewy pearls and the drink itself. It usually has a comically thick straw sticking out the top. And to me, bubble tea is pure cheerfulness in beverage form. I think it's the most vibrant, crowd-pleasing introduction to Asian pop culture. Sorry, egg tarts. So, how did bubble tea get so crazy popular? Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we tell the story of how bubble tea went from nowhere to everywhere. I'm Kevin Pang. Slurp harder, people. Stick around. Hey, everyone. It's Kevin here. If you're listening to Proof, you probably love food. Maybe you're even a great cook already, or maybe you aspire to be one. And if that's the case, then Sur La Table is for you. Good cooking comes down to two things, skills and tools. Sur La Table has you covered on both. They have the largest recreational cooking class in the country, with over 40,000 classes for folks of any skill level, even the kids. And they stock high-quality tools and equipment from the best kitchen brands, many of which have come out on top in our product reviews at ATK, Allclad, Le Creuset, Breville, and more. So, do yourself a favor and go wander the aisles of one of their retail stores. There are over 50 locations across the country. You can ogle beautiful pans, take that new kitchen gadget you've been eyeballing for a test drive, and just get inspired to cook something amazing. Visit surlatab.com to start cooking. That's S-U-R-L-A-T-A-B-L-E dot com. Reporter and cookbook author Clarissa Way brings us today's story. If someone asked me if there was a singular dish or beverage that represents my childhood, my answer would be boba milk tea. I grew up in a very Asian part of suburban Los Angeles. My high school was about 70% Asian. My friends and I spent our teenage years hanging out in boba shops. They were stocked with board games with Taiwanese pop songs crooning on repeat in the corner. It was a safe place where my friends and I could lounge, gossip, do homework, or go on first dates. We didn't really have a term for it until around 2013, when a music video by Asian-American comedy duo The Fung Brothers came out and gave this phenomenon a name. They called it Boba Life. Whoa, oh, 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 oh. We don't even have to try 
My earliest memory of boba is in Taiwan when I was four because my parents ran a boba shop. This is my high school friend, Daniel Xu. We grew up going to a lot of boba shops around LA as kids. I think my first memory of it was people like shaking it in the cocktail shakers. And I can still smell the black tea. The wild thing is, I don't remember boba being a big part of my childhood until about high school. In the early 2000s, when I was in middle school, there weren't that many boba shops in the US. There were the classics, chains straight out of Taiwan, like Tenren and Quickly. But about a decade later, more options started to pop up. My favorite was a shop in Arcadia called AU79 Tea House, which uses whole tea leaves to brew their drinks. And they had the most gorgeous boba. Soft yet chewy, drenched in honey, and the boba was served hot in ice-cold tea. I always ordered a jasmine tea with boba, half sugar, less ice. It's an order that really accentuated the boba, which to me is the main attraction. Daniel, however, was always more adventurous than I was and would go out to try the latest shops and flavors. Once he got a Royal Ceylon Tiramisu Cheese Foam Milk Tea which is basically a milk tea with tiramisu cream on top. It was a lot of sugar. I became, I guess, addicted to boba shops. I don't know if you remember, I used to care. I used to drink two of those a day. Daniel is still a diehard boba connoisseur. He and his wife keep a spreadsheet on the best boba shops and they rate them based on quality and price. Boba is a big part of my life because I still like it and I still go out of my way to drink it. I just can't double fist boba like I used to because my metabolism can't handle it anymore. Me, on the other hand, my relationship with boba tea has changed. For one, I've moved from LA to the birthplace of boba tea in Taiwan, where boba tea is everywhere, but where the boba life surprisingly isn't. I've also had to steep my brain in, well, Taiwanese cuisine life for the past two years to finish my cookbook, Made in Taiwan. I guess you could say my relationship to the drink has changed, much in the same way that boba tea, boba tea shops, and their place in society has changed. To unpack what I mean, let me put on my cookbook author hat and take you to Taiwan, back to the early days of boba tea's existence. Also referred to as bubble tea, the first iterations of the drink were tall glasses of iced black tea mixed with lactose-free coffee creamer. While the beverage as we know it today was invented in the late 1980s, aspects of it from the tea to the starch-based pearls have been a fixture in Taiwan for generations. The word boba refers to the starch-based balls of the drink. They're typically dark brown and about the size of a pearl. Occasionally referred to as fenyuan, these starch balls have been around for years, traditionally served in sugar water or on top of shaped ice. There are two types of starches boba is usually made up of, tapioca and sweet potato. Sweet potato was the original starch of the island, while commonly said to have been brought over by the Chinese sometime between the 16th and 18th century, some sources say the indigenous people of Taiwan brought sweet potato over via South America centuries before. To keep its shelf staple, starch can be extracted from the potato. 
It's a multi-step process that involves grating the potato, diluting it with water, and dehydrating the accumulated starch. But the benefit is that it stores well and can be used to thicken up soups or rolls into chewy balls. Tapioca, on the other hand, was only introduced to Taiwan in the 20th century during the Japanese colonial era. Derived from cassava, a root also from South America, its starch was quickly embraced because of its soft and gelatinous texture. Outside of boba pearls, it's sometimes used as a thickener for soups or as a coating for fried foods, like popcorn chicken. Back in the day, sweet potato starch and tapioca were considered to have cooling properties and were used as a folk remedy to help people cool down in the hot summers. In Taiwan, there's so many like a folk medicine, cure or healing some condition of the body health. This is Ivy Chen, a cooking teacher in Taipei and a recipe developer for my cookbook. Ivy tells me that her father, who used to deliver food to factories, would look forward to cooling down with a certain beverage after a hard day of work. And when it is particularly in summertime, when he come home, he will ask for a drink that is made with sweet potato starch, just stir in the water with brown sugar and stir well and drink like a beverage. And that will like uh, reduce the, the body heat and uh, uh, feel not so hot. I asked Ivy what it is about sweet potato starch that helps reduce the body heat. I actually no idea, but it's just always the, the family do, and not just my family, some other friends also do that, uh, can prevent from zhongshu. Zhongshu is a Mandarin term for heat stroke. Uh, it's just like brown sugar water with little starch flour inside. It's kind of weird for kids because it's not cooked. So it's the, the starch will... Uh, if you don't stir well, they will go in the, in, in the bottom of the bowl. So you need to stir every spoon when you drink it. The starch can also be turned into a dessert. Ivy, who grew up in the countryside of Taiwan, has fond memories of her mother rolling sweet potato starch into rectangles, a dessert called fen jiao. It's also made from uh, sweet potato starch. With just boiling water, you make a dough, and then you knead it, and then you just pinch it or just roll it out and then cut into like a small piece rectangle. And then we cook. Normally, my mom will prepare in summertime, cook with manbin soup with sugar. So that's our dessert. And with that, more texture. Texture is everything in Taiwanese cuisine, and there's a particular love for items with a chew. It's a concept known as Q, a term often mistranslated as al dente. But Q does not just mean al dente. Q is when you can forcefully bounce a meatball infused with starch on the table and have it hit you right back in the head. It describes a food that is both elastic and chewy, like mochi more reminiscent of a gummy bear than a perfectly cooked strand of spaghetti. It's so sought after that some street vendors will actually advertise their goods with a giant Q sign. So sometimes you even see it doubled into QQ for emphasis. And to provide textural contrast, starch balls were eventually put on shaved ice, a common dessert in parts of Taiwan today. Now, before we get into why these starch balls were added into tea, 
Let's dive into tea culture, because before boba shops were on every corner, tea houses were king. Taiwan's subtropical climate and mountainous zones make it an ideal place to grow tea. There are indigenous variants of tea on the island, but as an industry, Taiwan's tea started out as a cash crop for export to the Chinese mainland during the 19th century. Eventually, tea houses popped up throughout the island. Hot, freshly brewed small cups of tea were doled out like quick shots at a bar on a Friday night. By the 80s, there were these iced tea places where kids could hang out all day, sip cold tea, read comic books, and find refuge from the subtropical humidity. It seems like they were pretty similar to the boba tea shops that I grew up frequenting as a teenager in the U.S. The difference was that these places served what people called pao mo hong cha, or foamed black tea. It's a nod to the froth that forms after shaking up sweetened black tea in a cocktail shaker and then pouring it into a cup of ice. I meet food historian Emery Chen at a local foamed iced tea shop in New Taipei City to talk about pao mo hong cha culture. The place we meet has short wooden tables and chairs, and the space has no front wall. Back in the day, air conditioning was rare, and so this open format allowed for better airflow. Emery says that in the 80s, there were these iced tea places. They were not only gathering places where people could quench their thirst in the tropical climate. They were also a place where folks could relax, play cards, study. Emery says that he used to frequent these places in middle school and high school, and that they were significantly more popular in southern and central Taiwan. Eventually, people put the iced tea and the starch balls together, and bubbled tea was born. When we started to drink iced tea, then we found, wow, there's a lot of different variation in tea. This is Angela Liu, managing director at Cun Sui Tang, one of two bubble tea shops that claim to have invented the beverage. Angela's father, Liu Han Jie, is the founder of the Cun Sui brand. The story goes that in 1986, Angela's father started experimenting with tea and asked his staff to come up with new variations. An employee put tapioca pearls in iced tea, and history was made. So uh, he put like jasmine tea, teguan tea, oolong tea, all kinds of tea. And you will think, what else? What else we can do? And you, you look back into the history and you find, oh, ancient people, they put um, some dried fruit, some um, different uh, flowers, different ingredients into tea. So he asked our uh, staff, can everybody do some experiments to see what else we can put in into tea? But Angela and her family aren't the only ones who claim that they invented boba tea. There's another shop called Hanling that insists that they were the first ones to come up with the concept. The debate got so fiery that the two tea shops were embroiled in a heated 10-year lawsuit. This is Jack Huang, a manager at Hanling Tea Room, who has been with the company since 2007. He says that the owner of Hanling Tea Room, Tu Zonghe, started off the tea room as a traditional Taiwanese tea shop. There, he doled out hot, small cups of loose-leaf traditional teas. It was a place to slow down, and in the early days, a place where matchmakers would set young people up on first dates. But in the 80s, Tu saw a proliferation of these iced tea places around the island. 
Chu felt that Hanling Tea House could not remain stagnant and that it needed to adjust to the younger generation and with the times. So Chu began to embrace handshake and iced tea. He began to think about how to add value to the drink and one day found himself at a traditional market wherein an old lady was selling a dessert called Fenyuan, small transparent sweet potato starch balls in sugar water. Tu saw the fenyuan that the grandmother was selling and wondered why it was only served with sugar water, Huang tells me. So Tu thought, what if I added this to my product? Who knows what sparks might appear? It's said that the day he did that was October 25th, 1986, the birthday of bubble tea. Meanwhile, about 100 miles north, the other tea shop, Chun Sui Tang, was making the same claim to fame. I asked Angela to describe the backstory. It's my it's my dad started a business, and originally he he was a like a tea master. He started to question why people just drinking tea, just like hundred years ago. But if you look into the tea history, you will find five thousand years uh, earlier they put food, they put a lot of ingredients into tea. So um, one time when he went to Osaka for um, his research. And he went to a coffee shop. He asked for, um, can I have an iced black tea? And he was refused because in Japan, they don't offer this kind of projects. But however, they offer iced coffee. When I tell Emery, the historian, about this, he is skeptical. Ice, he says, has been a fixture of Taiwanese society since the Japanese colonial era in the 19th century. There were ice factories and vendors that would sell it. So there's no way that ice black tea is a relatively new invention. Emery says he doesn't believe that it took until 1986 for someone to put ice and tea together. But as for bubble tea itself, it was less of an organic aha moment than it was a carefully planned product. Angela says it was put together during a brainstorm session at the company, and unlike Hanling Tea Room, whose first iteration of bubble tea had small transparent pearls called fenyuan, Sun Sui Tang started off with black tapioca pearls. It was uh, one ingredient in the shaved ice. As an experiment, one of the company's employees put the black pearls into ice black tea and the beverage was born. Yeah. And we named it bubble tea. We named it Jenju Nai Cha. The two owners of the tea room feuded for years. Both were resolute in their conviction that they invented bubble milk tea. And in 2009, they began suing one another for the rights to the beverage. This is our child. And one day there's another came out and said, hey, this is my child. <laughs> um, I think he, he announced that he invented white um, topioca milk tea. But the original one, the, the one that we're familiar with, is the, the black one. She says that the two were actually friends at one point and alleges that Chun Sui Tang's owner had actually visited their shop before in the past. At Hanling Tea Room, however, Huang insists it's all water under the bridge. I've been answering this question for 20 years now, Huang tells me. The owners of the two dueling tea shops were in fact acquaintances. 
Starch balls have been a part of Taiwanese cuisine for generations, he says. And milk tea is pretty common throughout the world. The owner, Tu Zonghe, has since passed away. But Huang used to talk to him about the issue, and it was something that he was stubborn about in his younger years, because he wanted to come out on top. In his later years, however, he became more indifferent to it. After a 10-year litigation process, the judge threw out the case. Huang tells him the judge said that because bubble tea is not a patented product, who actually invented it is irrelevant. Bubble tea does not belong to anyone, Huang says. It is owned by all the people in Taiwan. Mr. Tu gladly accepted this ruling and was more focused on expanding the market overseas. And today, boba is available throughout Asia and Southeast Asia, America, even Europe. Huang tells me that this is where Mr. Tu found his purpose. After the break, the evolution of Clarissa's relationship with the boba life. Hey, Proof listeners. Plugra's premium European-style butter is a favorite of bakers. Why? Cook's Illustrated recipe developer Erica Turner sums it up. Hey, Kevin. Did you know that the kind of butter you use when you're baking can actually make a difference in how your dish turns out? I did not. Butters that are slow-churned, like Plugra, are easier to work with because they make doughs more pliable. The amount of fat in the butter also makes a difference. Tell me more. Okay, so most American butters contain around 80% butterfat, but European-style butters like Plugra have a higher fat content. In fact, Plugra Premium European-style butter always contains 82% butterfat. And you're saying 2% is enough to make a noticeable difference? Oh yeah, definitely. With Plugra Slow Churn Butter and its 82% butterfat content, you'll notice richer, flakier pastries, cakes that rise higher, and cookies that crisp more easily. Embrace your inner butter lover. From professional kitchens to your home. Visit Plugra.com for more information. And now, back to our story. The first time I saw boba in America, it was at a Taiwanese restaurant in the suburbs of Los Angeles. It was the early 2000s, and it was served as a dessert. They had a vat of boba in the fridge, which they would scoop into styrofoam cups. It would be mixed with ice cubes, sweetened black tea, and creamer. Gradually, dedicated sit-down boba shops started popping up across the greater Los Angeles area. This was part of an effort by the Taiwanese government's soft power plan to put Taiwanese cuisine on the global map. As part of an economic stimulus plan, Taiwan's executive branch approved the equivalent of $34 million to host international food festivals in 2010. It sent Taiwanese chefs abroad to promote Taiwanese dishes like stinky tofu and of course bubble tea. By then, boba culture was starting to become more defined and was no longer exclusive to just Taiwanese Americans. It became an icon of Asian America. I talked to James Arcidius, a professor of history at the University of San Francisco, about the rise of boba culture in the U.S. James was witness to boba's emerging dominance on the West Coast during the late 90s and early 2000s. To me, 
I associate boba shops, boba cafes, and similar retail spaces as places of commuting for family and for friends. He tells me that the epicenter for boba culture was actually quite close to where I grew up. Arguably, the San Gabriel Valley is really where it kind of really started to take shape. So Arcadia and Monterey Park and San Gabriel and where I grew up on this in this part of the San Gabriel Valley, which was Roland Heights, Diamond Bar, Walnut area, uh, where you had also large Chinese communities, but especially Taiwanese communities. And so my recollections, both personally and as someone who also studies Asian America and Asian American history is, you know, it was Taiwanese families um, and Taiwanese Americans who really um, made boba very popular. Many of my friends were also Taiwanese Americans. Our families weren't super into us having coffee as kids. They found the caffeine content in coffee too stimulating. It worked out because there weren't that many coffee shops in the San Gabriel Valley in those days to begin with. But for some reason, hanging out at a boba tea shop was okay. We'd slept to the boba store after school, work there for a bit, gossip, play some board games, and then head home. It was a space where immigrant parents were comfortable letting us chill. It was Taiwanese after all. These shops were usually staffed by people of Taiwanese origin, and for them and for us, it felt like a safe place. And even though all of us kids were raised in America, there was a sense of familiarity in these boba shops. In those early days, many of them blared Taiwanese pop songs in the background, and I found comfort in those songs, songs that I would hear during my short winter break trips back to the island. They were songs I associated with vacation and my heritage. I called up my friend Christy Hang, a food journalist in Los Angeles. She keeps close tabs on the boba scene in the U.S. Like me, Christy began seeing boba shops in California in the late 90s and early 2000s. She then says they spread to the East Coast, but they called it something different there. They really call it bubbles. Bubbles. Bubble tea. In California, we always called it boba. But here in Taiwan today, few people call the drink boba anymore. It's considered a rather crude term. I've admittedly slipped up a couple of times and asked for boba before, and will often get weird looks from servers. Jack Huang, the manager at Heinling Tea Room, told me about the etymology of the word boba. He blushes and tells me it was a marketing gag by one of the early tea shops. There was a really famous Hong Kong celebrity called Amy Yip, he says. And her claim to fame was that, well, she had a special figure. Amy Yip's nickname was Boba, which is slang for big boobs. Emery, the historian, tells me more. In the 90s, Hong Kong and Taiwan were very culturally close to one another, Emery says. Boba was named after Amy Yip's breast, and the association has stuck ever since. Very few people actually refer to the pearls as boba anymore. In fact, the proper way to refer to the drink is zenzu nai cha, or bubble tea. The drink itself stayed, though, and began to pop up everywhere. To set themselves apart in the 2000s, stores started adding quirky new toppings and flavors, like taro milk tea or milk tea with pudding. 
However, in these last 10 years, Emery says, the number of drink shops started to become more high-end, and they started coming up with more ingredient-conscious drinks. Instead of just throwing in fancy toppings, there's now a distinct emphasis on quality over quantity. Today, single-origin teas, high-quality full-fat milk, plant milk alternatives, and lightly colored pearls are in vogue. Many shops will list where in Taiwan the tea is sourced, and sometimes even which brand of milk they use. I asked Christy, the food journalist, what are some of the prevailing trends in modern American boba shops? It's all about the gram, Christy tells me. We see stores that we know where their goal is to keep prices low, and they go for the volume sales. And then we also see these like aesthetic places that place more value on maybe the experience or how pretty things look. So we have places doing a lot of these like creme brulee tops where they add the sugar and they torch it in front of you so you can get that perfect like Instagram shot. And then you have places maybe I see doing these teddy bear molds. So they take these little teddy bear molds and they pour pandan jello in it or they pour coffee in it so that your drink doesn't get diluted and also very aesthetically cute. So that's another part of what's uh, very popular right now. I always thought the U.S. was a decade or so behind in bubble tea trends. They were a decade or so behind in getting introduced, and the U.S. is now in its Instagrammable boba tea phase. But there's one recent shift in boba culture where the U.S. has unfortunately caught on a bit faster. In the last three years or so, Christy tells me that many boba shops in the U.S. have converted to a to-go business model since the pandemic. There are fewer sit-down places than ever before. So I think for the most part, people have acknowledged the pandemic's kind of over for them. And I have noticed that it has become a trend that they can have these small storefronts where they're essentially a grab-and-go place. They want you to pre-order, grab it, and just leave. And that, you know, saves them money in case someone is using their bathroom, using their resources, and just kind of hanging out there. Truly, a lot has changed since the pandemic. This summer, I went back to the St. Gabriel Valley for the first time in years to catch up with some of my high school friends. By now, all of us are married and have moved away from the area. But for the sake of the old days, we congregated at a boba shop with our respective spouses. It was really different. Boba shops for us used to be our central perk. The coffee shop and the TV show Friends, where the characters could hang out all day. While there was a massive line for the drinks, there weren't that many seating spaces anymore. The shop was designed for a quick turnover. Grab your drink and maybe sit for a couple minutes or so, and then leave. The loss of this communal gathering place marks an end of an era. In a way, it's reminiscent of the way foamed iced tea shops of 1980s Taiwan were replaced by grab-and-go bubble tea places. Efficiency and higher profit margins is eventually prioritized over community and a sense of space. In a way, boba culture in the States is becoming more of what it's like in Taiwan. Less niche, more mainstream. Less tied to a place or a subculture, more of a capitalistic commodity. It makes sense. Boba is universal and accessible in part because it's highly customizable. Milk or no milk, sweet or no sugar. And unlike passing fads like Froyo, it's not tied to a season, nor does it require a lot of fancy equipment to put together. My friend Daniel observed this too. You know what's wild? Boba has had, it feels like such a niche thing when we're growing up. But recently I watched 
Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And one of the episodes has one of the characters go out and get Boba. And it wasn't like a joke or anything. He just went and get it like a casual thing. They're not Asian. They're just some white people out in Philadelphia getting Boba. It's weird to me that it's not even like a topic for them to talk about, just as normal as going to Starbucks to get coffee. And it's been interesting to watch the normalization of that. While the space where it's served is constantly in flux, at least the drink itself has become timeless. Like how the judge ruled in the lawsuit between the two dueling boba shops in Taiwan, today, boba, or bubble tea, truly belongs to everyone. Thanks to Clarissa Way for bringing us today's story. And a quick note to listeners, Proof will be on winter break the rest of December. Hooray! But we'll be back on January 11th. Until then, happy holidays and stay tuned for some pretty exciting announcements in 2024. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Angelica Quintanilla, also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of post-production and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to Xin Yun Wu for helping with reporting. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Plugra Premium Butter and Sur La Table. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up.